0: Well happy Thanksgiving everybody. Uh, we've made it around the world one more time. I cannot believe it but uh, November is almost gone. We are creeping into December and uh, before you know it we are going to be looking at a new year. Turkey season is going to be here. Uh, good fishing in Florida is is had all through the winter. You just have to kind of shift your focus and if you like red fishing the coast right now is on fire. Uh, I, <clears throat> this intro is going to sound a little different because I'm Recording this one on the road. Uh, we've had a lot of problems with our RSS feed, and uh, one of the feedback mechanisms was that uh, I needed to re edit them and upload them in a different format. So here we are. Uh, I don't have a mic on me, but uh, I just want to wish each and every one of you guys a happy Thanksgiving. Um, one of the things we are most grateful for is the amount of people that for some reason continue to turn in week to week. And listen to us. Uh, this is a fun podcast, and I hope you guys enjoy it. It's two hours long, and uh, I shot for a longer podcast because everybody's traveling this week. And uh, I kind of hoped that uh, you guys would uh, enjoy having the longer format. We are going to go all over the world with a Florida cracker, a good old Florida boy, and uh, who has an amazing story. And uh, I know you guys are going to enjoy it. And we've got a bunch of other stuff coming. I got a deer report that's editing and, and going to be uploaded shortly, and. Uh, hopefully the powers that be can get our rss feed a little more reliable we can get some more content out to you guys uh but uh, we got another video dropping uh tonight or tomorrow on the youtube channel as well so you can go over there and check that out uh if you'd like to sign up for patreon patreon.com forward slash chasing tails outdoors the money from that goes directly towards the expansion of the show new camera gear new states new new stuff um and uh We appreciate each and every one of you guys, and so check the website. There's something really cool coming down the pipe I think you guys are really going to like, so uh, I'm not going to spill the beans there, Uh, but we're going to have a really awesome Black Friday sale that you're going to want to jump on. So be watching the website, enjoy this episode, and we will see you on the other side. Ladies and gentlemen, this is one of those episodes where you look forward to recording it for months on end, I've had the the privilege of speaking with this fella for years now. Um, two thousand and sixteen or seventeen was the first time that I talked to this fella, and he remembered where I worked. Uh, he remembered I was in grad school after we after years, and not having talked to him. Uh, which lended, I think, itself to his his career uh, that we'll talk about here in a little bit. Lended itself well to that, uh, and this fella I feel like has opened up a whole array of outdoor activities that without the product that he has, you would find yourself severely limited. I find myself currently severely limited. And one of the reasons why I wanted to have him on is because I'm moving the direction of what he already has. I have questions. We've talked about this in the, in the uh, Marco Polo group, which is, as you guys know, where we get a lot of our podcast ideas, topics that swirl around there. uh, Finally, you know, find their way to the podcast. So I have got uh, the legend I mean, this fellow is a household name in Florida. He's smiling, <laughs> John Dobbs, buddy, man. So here's the deal: this is part two. We we, we tried to record this the first time; uh, it failed miserably. I had to run right out the door to a, a family emergency. I want to say thank you for constantly working with my crazy schedule and, and and coming on for a second go.
1: Hey, brother, I'm I'm glad to be here. I'm uh, glad to be a part of it, and uh, really uh, looking forward to to chatting.
0: Yeah, no, this is going to be really fun. There's I, I don't know that you could w- when we were talking all, uh before we hit record about the different things we wanted to hit, the different topics, uh all the all too often you find yourself constrained and this is why we love to have people on for part 2, part 3 to d- dive down into like nuanced material because you have too much to talk about. I don't know that we've ever had a buffet of topics from one guest like we're going to have with you. I mean, your, your history, uh, in, in the outdoors is just awesome. So, uh, why don't you give everybody kind of the elevator pitch as to who you are, um, the company that you run, and then we'll, we'll kind of bounce around. we got a bunch of stuff we want to talk about.
1: Okay. Well, uh, <laughs> I guess I would have to, I would have to back up to, uh, where I'm from. Uh, I grew up in the, uh, backwoods of the ozark mountains i was born in the 60s um and back then uh things weren't near like, like like they are today even there um we lived in the uh a log cabin that my great-great-grandfather had built my parents put uh they put newspapers over the walls and you know plastered the walls with newspapers to keep the uh, you know to cover up the uh and they put siding on the outside to cover up those logs because it made it look more respectable but uh we had a, a hand dug well out back we had no running water in the house we had an outhouse out back and um uh that was the ozarks I, I i uh hunted and fished as a kid uh and um didn't really have any concept of game laws uh you know i just didn't wasn't aware of it i was ignorant about that i i just it was total freedom. I could do whatever I wanted hunting and fishing. And, uh, um, I didn't, uh, have any concept of a hunting lease because there was land everywhere, public land. Uh, and, uh, but it was, it was an idyllic way to grow up, you know, when it comes to the outdoors. Uh, and, uh, I, uh, I was just a a backwoods kid. I, uh, I give you an example of just how, how, uh, how, uh, uneducated, I guess I was of the world I remember uh, a bunch of other kids saying they were going to the Cal Smith show, uh, and, and uh, I begged my mom I wanted to go, and uh, so she she uh, gave me the money to go to the show. And when I got there, it was a country and western singer, and, and his name was Cal Smith. Uh, I honestly thought Walt that I was going to see a blacksmith put horseshoes on a cow, <laughs> C-O-W, cow smith. But uh, um, anyway, he sang that one hit wonder. I think it was 1974. Hello, country bumpkin. I didn't know he was singing to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I can, I can tell from your backdrop, uh, you, your, your housing conditions have changed. You've got running water. It looks like you got you. you, you you're doing well for yourself over there. Uh, it, it, do you ever find yourself longing for those? De- let me let me tell you. I grew up no public land, but I had free reign of all the land around me. It was all private uh, privately owned. I didn't know people had boundaries. Like unless you had a fence up, I didn't know, and yeah. no one cared. You know, and I I'll be honest right. with you, I kind of miss those days.
1: <laughs> I, do, I do too. I do too. You know, we hunted on you know other other land, uh, adjoining farms and stuff. But yeah. I was from, uh, the, the mountain I'm from that it was, is our last name, Dobbs mountain. And, um, so a lot of the people adjoining farms, they were relatives. So yeah, I didn't, I didn't think about, uh, boundaries at all. You know, most of the boundaries were rock fences and stuff. You just <laughs> climb. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, those are more interesting times for sure. I, everybody I'm sure misses that, you know, what yeah. they can remember, what things used to be like. But yeah, uh, you know, it's definitely changing, and, and you know the the um, I guess the uh, the resources are you know becoming more limited, and uh, there's mm-hmm. more people that are buying for them. So it's uh, it's definitely something that uh, you know the the mud motor business I've started uh, helps uh, in that regard for people to access places where they're uh, you know they they can get to places that other people can't get to. So you can still find places that uh, you have the whole place to yourself. You know what I mean? You know, 40 yards away and there's another guy sitting in a tree stand.
0: (laughs) You know, it's funny. Also the resources change. You know, if you look at a lot of these places, the Wasissa river, uh, pretty much any lake in, in Florida now is chock full of hydrilla, unless there's good water movement. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, some of the places I hunted, uh, there'll be old timers fishing out there and they are just pissed that mm-hmm. the place where they grew up where all you had was lily pads and cattails, you know, you can't get out boards. You know, I was telling one guy where I deer hunted and he's like, oh, I can't even get back there anymore. I'm gonna have to buy a mud motor, but I can't even fish it. Even if I got there, and I'm like, what you mean? He goes, dude, that was my fishing hole. Like that, that place way up that Creek, that was my I can't even, there's no way to fish it anymore because of all the hydrilla and I'm like, you mean this wasn't here to begin with? He's like, nah, you know, like this yeah. is, just used to be a clear Lake and, you know, deep, deep holes and everything. And it just, it blows my mind. So, uh, you know, I think there's a resource need there as well. You know, you've got all these invasive species that are just choking things out even more so. And so, um, yeah you know, that's kind of what led me to you was I moved to Florida I grew up in southeast Georgia where if you wanted to get somewhere an outboard pretty much got you there and right. you move to Florida and all the lakes and rivers here really really don't want you back there
1: Yeah yeah it seems like anything comes here from somewhere else you know it it just uh, thrives it just takes yeah. off and uh there's a lot of competing uh, species and uh um you know and it's both in the plant life and and uh Fish and wildlife as well, so you know we got our uh, problems with our um, uh, the hydrilla you mentioned, but also with uh, the uh, uh, the pythons down in the glades, and mm-hmm. uh, you know the peacock bass. You know they're they're displacing other other uh, predators, but they're awful fun to catch. You know they're, yeah. <laughs> they're one one of the success stories of a foreign you know invading species.
0: Yeah. Yep. Well, so I, I have to ask you this question. Um, uh, the lake and the mountainous area that the the movie Ozark is or the show Ozark is filmed on was is that Dobbs Mountain? Is that is is?
1: Did... <laughs> First, well, I I uh I don't watch TV.
3: <laughs> okay,
1: I uh I've got a TV, but I don't turn it on uh, yeah. hardly. Ever. If I do turn it on, it's to watch something on the, maybe YouTube or something. But uh um I have seen about like. 10 minutes of the show Ozark and uh, that's, you know, it's nothing like the Ozarks, but uh, (laughs) uh, but yeah, it's uh, changed a lot too. You know, Uh, Walton uh, from Walmart, he, uh, he was up in Bentonville and um, my, one of my early jobs as a kid, uh, you know, like real job was uh, I worked at Walmart store number seven and back then, the furthest Walmart was Texas. Wow! And um, but he's done a lot. You know, that company has done a lot to uh, really expand that part of the of the world up there, and uh, it's it's built up quite a bit since then. But where I'm from is, uh, if you looked at the Ozarks, there's a an area where there's no highways. Uh, <laughs> you got Highway 59 to the east. You got Highway 71 to the or Highway 71 to the east. Highway 59 to the to the west highway 62 up above and then you got i i uh i four down below i think it's i four i 40 anyway there's a square there i'm from right in the middle of that square where there's <laughs> nothing it's it's pretty remote country even today um the uh the old road that goes up over the mountain there um it's still dirt wow. even today. And, uh, we have what they call low water bridges have you ever heard of that nope it's basically just a, uh, a, a shallow spot in a stream where you can drive across bed. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but when you go up on the mountain, you could hear, a, you could hear another car coming from a quarter mile away because all of the loose bolts and stuff on the bed and you know, the truck and everything be squeaking and popping and cracking. And you could hear people from way off uh, <laughs> That's awesome. Rough roads, but, uh, they're they're still that way, thankfully. And you know, I go last time I was back up there at the old family cemetery, they uh was old roads are still still yeah. like they has changed.
0: That's so in, in Southeast Georgia I grew up on a so uh Jekyll Island, Saint Simon's Island area, right behind oh, yeah. that. Yeah. And uh that area was where I grew up and all the roads were dirt. I literally remember them paving the main road down further towards the house. And um it used to be one of those things and when the weather was nice, you'd leave the windows open because you weren't, you didn't want to pay for AC. It was expensive. And, um, you would hear pop, 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 pop. And you could hear somebody coming from like a quarter mile away. Like you talked about, cause we used to pave the roads with oyster shells. And so you'd hear people coming kind of like you would gravel and, uh, you just took me back when you said that. You just took me back, man. Because because you'd be doing something, you'd be cleaning squirrels, you'd be cleaning fish, you'd be fixing a fence or something. You'd hear it, and everybody would just—it was like the entertainment of the moment. You're like, "Who's coming?" Like no one else is here, you
1: know. Like, so that's some beautiful country up there where you're from. I I love that area. I uh, I remember meeting a young kid up there one day that was that was fishing, and uh, I could hardly understand him. And I'm from the south. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is that- <laughs> thick but uh they got some good eating holes up there too man i went into this place one time uh with a buddy and there were no pictures on the wall nothing like that it was just they were if you came there you were there to eat yeah (laughs) yeah and buffet, and they bring carts around with dessert and you know iced tea and uh yeah and what good food that's one thing george is known for is some of the best best home cooking
0: yeah yeah, and it, it's uh, I I miss that Savannah area a lot. Savannah hasn't really changed, and you can go up there, and it, it's tough, dude. It's tough because that little try that little square that you talked about, it's gone. It's been developed, and so it's like people are like, oh, you want to go back home? And it's like, not really. Home's gone, man. Like that that area, they paved roads right smack dab through the pines, and it's subdivisions yeah. now. And so it's like. You know, the, I, I remember driving down one of the roads and I kind of got lost for a second. I was like, I don't like this feeling. Like I drove down this road my entire life and I don't have any idea where I am. Right. Yeah. But but that Savannah area, I love it, man. And the fishing up yeah. there, we we went up there for a baptism last week and uh, we had like two hours to go fishing. Jumped in the boat, put it in, go out there and we caught monster redfish. Just, you know, had, right. had a good time.
1: Yeah. That, them old, uh, that sawgrass and those old shrimp boats, man, that's just beautiful country around there. Yep. yep love to go up there
0: yeah yeah it's it's a great time um well so this begs the question how in the heck did uh the lawless or the 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 law ignorant i should say not lawless it wasn't intentional ozark <laughs> boy find florida
1: <laughs> well uh i as a kid i always loved to read okay and i always you know had a when i bring my school books home with me we lived on a farm and uh I always brought a, a a library book home with me as well. And uh, the little lady that was our librarian at our local school, Beulah Bachman was her name, uh, bless her heart. She just stocked those shelves with all manner of books about foreign places all over the world. And uh, that's what, you know, when I started learning, you know, about other places around the world. And when I was in the fourth grade, I read the book, The Yearling. Mm-hmm by Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, you know, I just, you know, I learned that there was a place that was warm. You know, this boy that had a pet deer. And you know, <laughs> really a and uh, when I was, I think I was 17, I was laying underneath a 53 Studebaker putting a clutch in it. In the cold, I had coveralls on it. It was frozen. You know, you ever been out working and your fingers, it's so cold that your fingers lose dexterity yep. and they hurt. Well, I was trying to put bolts in this bell housing, and I, and I was laying there, and I said, you know, there's a better place than this. It's warm. <laughs> I, I, I promise, but then when I get out of high school, I'm headed to Florida, and I made good on it. The very following day after graduating, I was on the road down here, and, uh, you know, I go back and visit, but I've been here ever since. I've lived here longer than I lived there. Uh, I, I left there when I was 18, and uh, I just just getting ready to turn 55. So uh, I've been down here a while.
0: Okay, now that begs the question: given given that you've hit that point of uh, you've been here longer, are you a Florida cracker or are you an Ozarks boy? What do you, how, what's, what's home?
1: <laughs> I'm I'm a hybrid. I can I, 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 <laughs> be a hillbilly, yeah. But my all of my friends, they're all you know, they're all crackers, all yeah. of them. Yeah, yeah. I i run with uh with a pretty rough little crowd of boys. <laughs> <laughs> they're all good folks, man. You can call them and they're there in a minute. Yeah. You yeah, I yeah. I remember coming back from I, I was up Cedar Key a while back and I uh got me a load of oysters and I was coming back and uh I threw a belt on my old GMC pickup and uh I was sitting on the side of the road and it, uh, and I I actually posted up a picture. I said, note to self, when you, when, if you break down on the side of the highway, make sure you have a, a uh, you know, a bushel of Cedar Key oysters with you. <laughs> and it wasn't even uh, a minute. A buddy of mine calls me up. He goes, Hey, you need help. I'm on the way. <laughs> you know, and he's a hundred miles away. Yeah. He, was, he was ready to hook on a trailer and come get me. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, that, that's the kind of friends I have down here. So, you know, crackers are good folks oh yeah and uh where i'm from people are i don't know they're a little more rough cut a little more rough around the edges the crackers are crackers are so polite down here where i'm from that people will tell you exactly what they think
3: Mm -hmm.
1: uh, and you know they just are unfiltered Mm -hmm. down here uh, it seems like the crackers i know they will um they they don't want to hurt your feelings (laughs) 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 but not straight, you know? Yeah. Uh, that's, that's one of the things that, you know, to get used to from, uh, from the difference from out there and down here. But, uh, yeah, I love all my buddies. they're good folks.
0: I, I spent my first half of my childhood in Slido, Louisiana. And uh-huh. I never forget. You talked about how nice people are and going out of their way. My dad, yeah. when I was a child, I never saw him. He worked so much, but every year we would make a squirrel squirrel palooza we would go to Southeast Georgia for a long weekend and we would shoot as many squirrels as we could. We made squirrel and rice and fried squirrel and everything did that, uh, had a good time. And I remember one day we left on a Thursday night. Dad was going to drive through the night so we could have our full three days over there and, uh, drove through the night. We got right across the bridge on Lake Pontchartrain, got to the far side. And all of a sudden you hear, tire goes and it's pouring down rain. I'm talking just raining cats and dogs. And pull off to the side of the road. I quit counting at twenty six. Now I don't know if that's because I was too young to count past twenty six, or I just got tired of counting. But twenty six trucks pulled off in front of us, backed up in the rain, hopped out, and came to ask my dad if he needed help because he's back there, you know, working on a Chevy Lumina. Um, And the first one helped us, and we we were off to the races. But there was it was just truck after truck after truck. And um, there's just something different about these deep south fellas they're just a little little yep. nicer a little softer
1: yep, yep. You know? oh, yeah. yeah i love it down here i I wouldn't live anywhere else yeah yep. yeah it's good good uh good people in the south so yep.
0: so you, you came down here what'd you do because i know that i know i know what you ended up doing and i'm yep. curious to see how you made the transition and was it was it a transition you made because of your childhood of uh, uh you know up in the ozarks or was it just to stay in the outdoors
1: like what was the motivator? No, I just, uh, well, that country out there is, uh, I, I call it tooth and nail country because it really is a tough place to heck out of living. There wasn't sure. a lot of, then now there's a lot more money out there, but, uh, back then there wasn't none. I, uh, I made money by hauling hay or, or, uh, I worked for a sorghum farmer. Um, just whatever it was seasonal in the winter I trapped. And, uh by the time I graduated high school, I had $10,000 saved up. And that's a lot of possum hides. Let me tell you. (laughs) Yeah. But, but uh, I ended up um, when I got down here, I wanted to go to college. So I I went to USF and um, in Tampa. And um, I remember one day I I was, I was actually wanting to be an airline pilot. I was actually flying. I was doing my cross country solos and everything and had, Everything out of the way but my check ride. Then my flight instructor got killed in a crash, and he was a much better pilot than me. And uh, that kind of – and I also also was running a little money. So uh, I I was sitting on the causeway where the the bridge was up one day, and there was a sailboat going through. And all of a sudden, a patrol boat ran underneath the bridge. And I looked to my left as the patrol boat was driving away, and there was a, a guy wearing a gray uniform and a gun belt. And his his name was Tim Erickson. I you know I I recognized he's a great big Swede. And um, years later, I got to meet him. But uh, I immediately pointed at that boat and I said, "That is what I'm going to do." And it was just it was a reflex. It was without hesitation. And from that moment forward, I completely shifted gears and I I I started pursuing a a career with the uh, Florida Marine Patrol. So I applied to them. Uh, They took five thousand applicants applications. And they had physical assessments in Tallahassee and also another one in Tampa. Well, I went to the one in Tampa. And when I when I went to that physical assessment, there were a sea of people. And and the, I remember uh, Major Ken Thompson standing up on a uh, uh, platform of dressing the crowd up on a, a, a high uh, um, balcony. And he's got a megaphone so everybody can hear him. And he says, we're, we're, we're offering 40 positions. Wow. And I remember standing there and thinking, there ain't no way I'm going to get this job. 40 positions. Look at there. There's thousands here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I went through the physical assessment and, uh, passed that. And then, uh, then they, uh, I think they did, uh, uh interviews next. And, uh, I ended up passing that enough. So they, they, they narrowed it down. There was only a few hundred. They brought to Tallahassee for further screening. And somehow I made it past the psychological, <laughs> and then they uh <laughs> they did a good job but uh um and I started the academy uh in nineteen ninety and uh graduated and then they they assigned me to manatee county and uh that's where I was from, so I was lucky to go back to my home county. a lot of my buddies didn't get to go back to where they were from um you know they went to other counties but uh I was able to get back here and i and i I worked for the Marine patrol um, as an officer for about four years. Then I went undercover work, uh, a thing called a resource protection unit where we worked uh, undercover stuff uh, with uh, regarding poaching, gill netting, um, smuggling. And um, then I was promoted in 97. And uh, then we merged with the Florida game commission in 99. So just a, a series of events is how I became a game warden. It was kind of by accident. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I didn't intend to become a game warden, but, uh, uh, you know, eventually, uh, merging with the game commission, you know, the, it, it was a really easy transition for me. Cause I already worked with those guys, all the local game awards here in the County, we all knew each other and we worked together on various things. So, um, it was a real easy transition for me, um, to, uh, go from saltwater to freshwater and hunting and, you know, catching gators and uh, dealing with poachers and stuff, and I uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. It Just really opened up more horizons. You know, more more things to do. As if there wasn't enough to do, every day was different. That's what I really enjoyed about that career was no two days were alike, and mm-hmm. you had no idea what was coming that day. It was just really exciting. So, it was a good job, really good career. So I I have to ask, and I know it's gonna be really difficult
0: for you. Actually, I got two questions for you. One of these is for our Patreon listeners: um, Is Marion County as bad as the reputa- reputation that it has? Can you tell? Can you can you blink twice if it's if it's a terrible county for for <laughs> we? So, bit of an inside joke there. About two thirds of our listener our our Patreon group is from Marion County, and they always joke about how the poaching is really bad in Marion County, and they're all from that. It's it's them them making fun of themselves. Um, so I was just curious and based on your demeanor I'm thinking Marion County might be
1: up there. <laughs> well, I haven't worked I haven't worked as a game warden in the north northern part of the state. Uh all my time has been in Southwest Florida. Um you know, Polk County's got a got a pretty good reputation in that. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. uh, um, uh Highlands County, uh you know, Manatee, all this area. Yeah. Butchers everywhere no matter where you go you're gonna find them they're they're out there doing it. and it it always has amazed me that uh people will go to such lengths to do uh you know crazy stuff you know just to to uh be able to keep something that you take a deer and you skin it out and hang it up i i knew a guy eugene used to have a store out east of town here and he was a butcher and he had people bring deer to him well he also butchered goats for the local mexicans and uh you would uh you couldn't tell the difference between them hanging up when under their skin. Mm. <laughs> you had to really look hard, yeah, <laughs> but uh uh yeah've I've seen people uh try to uh keep trout under their hat <laughs> i I had a fellow one time I was watching him he was out wade fishing, and uh, he he came back in and uh, asked him if he caught anything, and his his hat started flopping. <laughs> what the hell had <laughs> he he a trout underneath his hat, <laughs> 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 yeah.
0: oh, well, okay, so I don't know if that answers the second question I had for you, but what was like the most knuckle headed thing you ever saw somebody I mean that's up there, but like what's the most knuckle headed thing you'd ever you ever
1: encountered well he... This is Florida, so it's true. This is true. The bar is high. <laughs> no, there's a lot. Now, I, I actually did not go on this call, but I met with an officer right after this had occurred happened to him and he related this story. He got a it was, it was officer Rick Sloan. He's now retired. He lives out in Missouri. But Rick went on a call to uh Mayaka State Park. And when he got out there, uh there were these these two ladies that were, well, they were kind of tough ladies, if you know what I mean, Mm -hmm.
3: (laughs) they
1: they were all scratched up. And, uh, so he had his, uh, he, he was asking them what happened. He says, tell me what happened to you. And they said, well, we, uh, we worship cats, you know, felines.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. And uh, So they, they were out there in the woods and they, they, they basically sprayed cat piss all over each other. And then they crawled around on all fours, you know, uh, in the woods. I'm telling you, people here, especially they get out in the woods. You, you, the things we've seen are amazing. And anyway, a, a local bobcat, he didn't take kindly to it. And uh, so they're basically their god attacked them. Uh, this bobcat tore them up. I mean, they were scratched all of it.
3: <laughs> to get 50% off.
0: <laughs> oh, that's, you know, I feel like if you ever want to give a game warden a hard time, if he's ever grumpy or something, give him a pass because that's the kind of stuff he's having to deal with. Evidently. That's, oh man.
1: We had, a, we had another uh, night. Uh, um, uh, Jeff Babauta he's, He's also retired, and then we've got a guy who's now he's now a lieutenant colonel up in Tallahassee, Brian Smith. They set up a a uh, a road hunting detail one night with the Robo Deer, and they had it you know down at the end of a road where it teed into another road, and they were out in the Palmettos. They had this thing set up, and you know it takes a lot of work to get one of those organized and set it up, and you know uh, get ready for it and waiting, and you're waiting for you know the right truck to come along that you you know the truck. You got big old bogger tires on it and everything, you know. Oh, here's a good one. Here he's coming. Yeah. yeah. But these, this truck drives up, and these, it's a, it's just a little old, like a little small pickup, and he they drove out in the Palmettos near where they were at, and these two guys get out, and they strip down and start chasing each other around naked. It's oh my God. both of these guys are known. They knew who they were. And, uh, and it is, these are the kind of guys that wouldn't want other people to know that they're doing this. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> which and is it,
0: indicative of the fact they're doing this in the dark in the in the in, yeah. the, in the forest. You know, <laughs>
1: I don't think anybody's out there. Finally, Jeff looks over at Brian. He says, "Have you had enough of this?" He's like, "Yeah." So, well, he took his pistol. I don't remember which one, and shot in the air. <laughs> these two dudes left, they jumped in their truck even without their clothes, and they just they were out of there, but it, you know, it, it was messing up their detail, you know, it's like, we want to catch a fire hunter, not a couple of fruit
3: yeah. loops.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can just see the anticipation, you know, they heard the hum of those mud tires, and they just <laughs> knew what they were getting into until they just didn't. <laughs> Yep. i'm crying that yep. is too good oh my oh, i've told i've told both these stories at least once or twice on the podcast so i'll only tell one but i know you'll get a you'll get a kick out of this i was uh turkey hunting uh spring of 2000 and, uh 20 or 19 one of the two and i'm out in the forest and I'm walking down this this edge that goes right down a little creek edge and it's and it's it's like i mean we're we're good ways from a road right like i'm i'm doing the get away from everybody thing and i'm walking through and there's like these peter pines to the left and there's these like scraggly really scraggly live oaks to my right um you can't climb these live oaks kind of mm-hmm. live oaks you know what i'm talking about and uh and i'm walking down the road in here
3: <clears throat> i'm like
0: what in the hell was that and i i'm I'll admit it. Something does it in the twilight. You start to kind of wonder what it is. You know, it starts to weigh on. You keep walking here. I'm like, where is that coming from? Like, <laughs> what is this? And I start looking around and I hear God dang it. Smack thwack. And, you <laughs> know, brown paper bag with poop hits the, hits the ground in front of me about 30 yards from me. And I look up and in the top of these, of these live oaks that are, are stretched out leaning trying to find sunlight are two hammocks. Tied at the top of the live oaks. I'm talking the very top of the canopy. And one dude's pissed that the other guy's snoring and waking him up. And so he's throwing, he's hurling the bags of fecal matter that I guess he's been packaging up up there at the other guy's hammock. He gets pissed, starts throwing his fecal matter at the other guy. Neither of them are speaking English at all. And I'm just standing there with a shotgun on my shoulder, just staring up 50 feet while there's a poop fight between hammocks that I still can't figure out how they got up there. <laughs> and then finally one turns and looks at me and goes, huh. You know, and just like wide-eyed. And he points at me, and the other guy points at me, and I got out of there. I'm like, nope, I'm gone, dude. Like I'm not I'm not playing this game. And so Holy I tell that story on the podcast the year it happens. No one believes me. I don't blame them. Two years later, we go to that same spot with a fellow who found me up because of the podcast. We turned into Fast Buddies. We now turkey hunt. And I'm telling him, like, hey, this is that area that I told you about the podcast. And he he elbows me really hard in the ribcage. And he's like, man, I I love you, but you're a good storyteller. That's why I love the podcast, but you're a really good storyteller. We turn around the corner, and there are two tattered hammocks that they never untied. Still hanging from the trees, and I'm like, I told you, I effing, t-. and like I'm just, I'm just screaming. The hunt is ruined. I was like, I, and he's just a jaw struck, and just, just completely gone. And then when you went to the leaves, you could still see like the, the matted paper bags that were still on the the forest floor. So when I saw that, I realized you guys had your work cut out for you because that is some. There are just some weird people out there, dude. Especially
1: in the woods. That's why you know I, I don't ever, ever go to the woods without being armed. Mm -hmm. working or not uh there's a lot of crazy folks out there and you never know what you're up to
0: yep a lot of florida fans and they just scare the absolute crap out of me man it's um but all right so let's get back we got sidetracked (laughs) and i knew i knew that was going to happen i told you it was going to happen let's get back to it you're you're in you're 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 working uh i'm gonna call it fwc but i think you called it maritime right
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was more, it was Florida Marine patrol starting. And, uh, and then, uh, we merged in 99. It became the FWC.
0: Gotcha. So you're doing this and you're sitting there one day eating your breakfast. And the idea of a mud motor just popped into your mind. You invented it completely on your own. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) How how did, how did these two passions like, like intersect? I don't understand it. Help me, help me with the connection.
1: Well, in, uh, after I'd been, uh, a Marine patrol officer for about four years. I, uh, I had a buddy that I went to college with. He's, he's always telling me about Thai food. He's like, man, you need to try Thai food. It's, it's amazing. You know, it's, it's not like anything else. So one day I was driving my patrol car, down Manatee Avenue in Braden. And I, I saw uh, a sign, that said grand opening Siam cafe. And I like, that's, that's Thai food. So I went home, got out of uniform, and I drove up there and, and went and ate, and it, my buddy was right. It, it, it was absolutely phenomenal food. Yep. And uh, really hit it off with the uh, with the waitress and with the owner of the place. And uh, before I knew it, it was 11 o'clock at night, me and the owner are sitting there drinking Budweiser, and the lights are out. And uh, so I just, I got hooked up, you know, running around, you know, eating at, at this restaurant a lot, and I just got to where I was hanging around with Thai people and um, really like them because they're they're wonderful folks. They're uh, of all of Southeast Asia. The Thais have been our allies since the 1830s. They're very different than any of the other Asian countries around them. And uh, they just have an amazing culture, uh, amazing food. So anyway, Sam was the guy that owned this restaurant and he eventually moved in with me. Cause I had a three bedroom house and I was like, why are you paying rent, Sam? So I get where he was bringing food home to me, <laughs> Oh uh, man. And he would always tell me stories about back home, you know, it, you know, he was, he had not been back to Thailand in many years. So I, and I had said to him, I said, Sam, let's, let's go. And, uh, so I started saving my money. I'd put money in a coat pocket in my closet until I had enough money to go. And then when I, 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 I saved up enough, I said, Sam, let's go. He says, Oh, I can't close the restaurant. He goes, I can't go. I said, sure you can. And, uh, but he wouldn't do it. So I went by myself. And, uh, while I was over there, I, I took a Jan sport book bag, a towel, a shaving kit, a camera. And I took off across Thailand and, uh, I absolutely loved it. You know, all across the country, up. I went up to the North and Chiang Mai, Chiang Rai all the way around down to, to Isan and, Back to Bangkok and then down to the southern part. But while I was there, I was staying in Chiang Mai, Thailand, up in the north, in the mountains, in a little hotel. And uh, there were some girls that were all college friends there that were there at the same time, vacation. And they'd gone to college together, but they were working girls at this time. They worked uh, in Bangkok at, um, in the office buildings. So uh, I met uh, one of the girls there, and uh, her and I started writing to each other when I got back to the States. And, uh, it turned, as it turned out, as fate would have it, she had an aunt right here in Braden Florida. And, um, and so, uh, she came over and stayed with her aunt and we started dating and, uh, um, and then she went back to Thailand and then she came back again and we got married. And, um, so that's how I got hooked up with the ties and, and my many trips to Thailand. I, I just became, Amazed about the Thai longtail, you know. I saw this thing that this drivetrain was so simple, and yet it was so capable. And I, I was just always smitten with the, with them. So uh, those and this little Thai girl. So I ended up marrying her. And uh, then every trip I'd go to Thailand, I'd spend as much time around Thai longtails and on the clongs and at the races. I'd go to Thai longtail racing, which, by the That's way, awesome. Thai Thai longtail racing. There's nothing like it. It is it is so uh, spontaneous, so seat of the pants. These guys will all—they're—they're uh, they're just a bunch of country boys from the rice paddies. They'll get together, they'll text each other, and they'll say, "Hey, who wants to go to rock Wrong Wood tomorrow?" And we're going to race. They'll show up, and then all of a sudden, you got girls bringing vendors for selling food and stuff on the side of the of the canal. They call them clongs. These guys don't wear any helmets. They don't wear—they don't have any kill switches no safety equipment of any kind and they run these 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 uh these little boats that are about the size and weight of your bathroom door and they're made out of the same material they're made out of luon and they'll run these things at insane speeds and uh it to me it's just the best racing there is what what's an insane speed 50 miles an hour oh no 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 uh um we did a video back in 2012 it's on my youtube channel uh where we've got cameras in the boat cameras out of the boat uh 93 miles an hour <laughs> holy crap dude but that's not the fastest the fastest speed right now in thailand is a uh, is done by a Kawasaki with a with a uh, an SPS drivetrain which SPS is the product i sell um and the the current fastest speed is 119 Oh, but most people, most people can get at least 90
0: in their John boats is what you're saying.
1: <laughs> no,
0: no, that's, that, that's a tiny <laughs> special
1: equipment, yeah. but uh, a we, tiny we, boat, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, they're, they're tiny. Um, yeah. I've got a couple of them. I have actually a, a couple of long tail boats of my own, but, um, but yeah, it's a, it's an amazing thing to see. It's not something easily seen though. If you go to Thailand, you can't just go and see a long tail race because they don't really advertise it, you know. It's mm. happens. Um, you know, they they I guess they do have regular races at certain locations, but uh you would have to you would have to know somebody because nothing's advertised in English. But uh definitely a, a, a neat thing. So anyway, um I got to Delving more and more in Thai longtails, and I got to know the owner of uh, SPS, a guy named uh, um, Song Sak Sriprasert Ying. He started his business in 1957. He was the first builder of Thai longtails in Thailand. Wow. Um, and, matter of fact, the word longtail actually derives from Thailand. Um, it, they, they call it Ru Hong Yao. And rua is boat. Hung Yao is is tail long. Boat tail long. So uh, the very word long tail originated in Thailand, not here. Um, Cool. Yeah. Um, um, The first long tail here in the states was uh, Warren Coco out in Louisiana, and he based what he's he said at one time on his website. He used to say that he based his design on long tail seen in Southeast Asia. I, I guess he might've been a vet. I don't know if he was a Vietnam vet or not, but that's what he used to say on his website. I don't know if it still says that, but uh, um, what he saw was what what we sell pretty much unchanged. Not not many changes at all. Um, the neat thing about the Thai long tail, it's so simple and yet it's so refined. There's been so many times over the years that I've tried to make changes to them. Mm-hmm. An egg on my face, you know. I'll be out at the test lake and I'll, I'll weld up something and go out there and try it. And I'm talking changing something, you know, an eighth of an inch or a pivot point, you know, just a, a little bit. And like, well, that didn't work, you know. It's uh, it, it, I I I've, I've developed more, and, you know, more and more respect for the the guys that came before me. Uh, the more I mess with them, the more I see just how dialed in they really are. Um, there's a, there's a lot to them, but, uh, when it comes to how they're set up and how they run, they don't run like, like the, uh, the long tails that, uh, these, what well, I guess you would call American style. The American style ones use a U joint and they have a shorter shaft. Well, that U joint robs the engine of power. And then that shorter shaft creates a, a more steep uh, shaft angle so that your, your, uh, prop is closer to your boat and anybody's run a boat any amount of time. you look back, you can see that where your boat is leaving a low pressure area, a trough behind the boat where it displaced the water. time mm-hmm. there there's a lower area than all surface water around you uh, as your boat goes forward. Right. And most most of your long poles and all your service drives they run in that low water. So that propeller has to be down below that water, or at least right at the surface to get a bite where the tie long tail, the reason our shafts are so long is we're taking advantage of that wake back there, where that crest comes together behind your boat, you know, where the water comes Mm -hmm, back. mm -hmm. Faster you go, the further back that crest is to a point. So uh, you want to be in that crest. So with a tie long tail, the actual propeller is running higher than the bottom of your boat, not lower. Um, that's why, you know, when I run in rocky streams, like in Alaska and places where there's big boulders, I'm not worried about work, wiping out a prop. I'm more worried about knocking a hole in my boat, you know, in the bottom. Um, they'll, they'll go places that, uh, you know, an American style one would not go. And, you know, in those regards, and they're faster too. You know, it's just a straight drivetrain. Um I had a, a, a friend of mine who's been a mechanic all his life, a guy named Bill. Uh he when I first uh started bringing these to the States, he came into the shop one day and I was sitting there in a chair with around with some other guys and we were just sitting around talking, and Bill came in and walked over to the bench and he was looking at this long tail kit that we sell, laid out on the bench, and I was just watching him. I didn't say anything, and Bill finally says my how elegantly simple and that's coming from a mechanic and I, I i thought that was the greatest compliment i've ever heard paid to the tie long tail my how elegantly simple and I, I bill you're exactly right uh it is it's it's elegantly simple um there's not very many moving parts in it it's it's just a very simple design but uh, anyway mr song sock the guy who developed this uh, in 57 back then people uh who were farmers were trying to get their crops to uh to bangkok to the market they had the paddle or the other alternative was they had little tugboats that had these little old diesel motors in them that had to make them great great gearbox they would use those to, to to uh to get to to market and um Songsock saw this because he used to work on those, those gearboxes repairing them. And uh, he saw uh, a small general purpose engine, you know, cause uh, Kohler started to uh, come to town. They were, they were uh, using these motors to pump water in the rice fields. And uh, somebody came up with the idea to, to put one together and and put a shaft on it. One of the very early ones had a bamboo shaft with a bamboo propeller. Of course that, you know, didn't do a whole lot, yeah. but, uh, but, uh, you know, they, they tried all sorts of things, but it evolved and, and Songsock saw these early, these early attempts by other people. And he said, I can do better than that. So being the machinist that he was, he, uh, he came up with the design you see today. And it's that design I've got, I've got an antique long tail down in my shop from 1961 or 62 based on the motor that's hooked to it. It's an Elo. Based on that engine, we think it's about 1961 or 62 long tail. And it looks almost exactly like the long tail that we sell.
0: That's crazy. Yeah. So you're talking about a design that hasn't changed in, what, 80 years? No. 60 years? 50 years? Yes.
1: It doesn't really need to. Yeah. Um, It works. And it works well.
0: So so let's kind of so we're gonna come back to the Alaskan thing because I think that's like the epitome of a testimony testimony, <clears throat> and I think it's also just a badass story. Um, I, I was floored when I saw you making posts about it up there because it just it, it's something that I associate with Florida, not that area. Um, sure. So you you talked about how some of these American designs are different, and mm-hmm. you, 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 the the simpleness of the system. I remember when I found your YouTube channel back when we first, you know, got in contact and I was pestering you with a bunch of questions. I remember watching uh, a young girl putting this thing together on the YouTube yep. channel and to me, I was immediately skeptical because I was mm-hmm. like there's there's no way, right? Like that just seems like the ultimate gimmick, right? You you train this little girl to do it, countless hours of preparation and you watch the video and it's stupid simple. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I'm curious how like how efficient is this as a tool we talked about these these small boats and how fast they can get how efficient is this in in weeded choked out areas with a John boat like is this a, a heavy workhorse is this a niche item kind of give me some feedback there
1: well when I when I first started bringing the long tail to the states we had our we had our issues with weeds and vegetation because we did not have a uh, our skeg was more, uh, what well, was more like a racing skeg than a uh, a weedless skeg? So I i had to come up with a skeg that was more weedless for it. And the very first ones we we sold, we didn't have weedless props either. So, mm-hmm. so that you, but uh, it came up with uh, a really good weedless prop that we worked on and did it, a lot of work into that thing. And it's an excellent little prop. Um, and uh, that that took care of that problem. And uh, then we, I came up with also a weed cutter that you can attach to our skag, and it will, as, uh, as vegetation does try to get wrapped around the prop because a weedless prop, what it is, it's, it's got negative rake to it. Um, it helps for the, to, to, to slough the weeds off, but it's. What's, it,
0: what's negative rake? Help me out with that. I've never heard that before.
1: Well, it, it, when I, when a prop is designed the, the way they the, the 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 shape it's kind of hard to explain but the way the shape of the prop is the the uh the, the way that the blade curves around the weed can slide off of it easier ah, okay than, uh than something with uh with uh, um positive rake so the um the the prop is called weed weedless it's not weed free. <laughs> so, so you still can get some weeds a little bit, it, yeah. all, all, but there's a trick. Uh, uh, there's a couple things you can do. We put this little, uh, this little bar piece of bar metal on our skeg that sticks out right, just shy of the prop blade. And when it does try to get a piece of vegetation around it, it comes around and that bar actually cuts it. Yeah. You've seen, you've seen cutters on weed eaters too, like this, uh, probably yep. or, or um, trolling motors. Yep. Matter of fact, I think a trolling motor is where I got the idea. So anyway, uh, we came up with that, which also helps. Uh, And um, there's another thing you can do when you're out running them. Mm -hmm. When you're on a plane running a a long tail, you can take your hand and just dip down real quick and just clear the prop out of the water for a split second. As you're running, you don't even come off plane. It's so quick. Uh, When you're running through really thick vegetation, you do that every now and then. And just dip the prop real quick, and uh, it'll sling anything off. So that's that's some of the things that we've employed to uh, be able to push these things through real thick vegetation. You know, we're we're throwing the stuff off because some vegetation is fibrous. Yes, and that stuff's what that's the stuff mm-hmm. that gets the uh, the stuff that's like cellulose that just flies apart. You know, like uh, hydrilla, that's no problem. It just cuts it up or water lettuce, all that. But you start getting into some of that grass, and uh, some of that can be uh, it can be a nightmare. But uh, by employing all those things, you can uh, you can get through it a lot easier and uh, with a lot less problems.
0: Does having that prop higher than the bottom of the boat also kind of help with that? Because you're not you're not pushing the prop further down into the water column, thus grabbing more.
1: I, I think it does. You know because yeah. it's out rest of the wake so uh you're you're getting more water than uh than stuff off the bottom uh you're not dredging stuff up so yeah i think it does i'm but, sure
0: uh, i'm sure that that negative rake has a bit of a performance trade-off
1: as well actually the the, the little the little prop that we have our, our little six and a half uh inch prop and then we've got an eight an eight and three quarter version of it those actually our six and a half especially does one mile an hour faster than my little standard prop. Uh, I was really pleased with how that little prop turned out. You know, I, I just, I made a lot of versions of it until I got out there and I had one. that was like, whoa, we have a winner, you know?
0: Yeah. But yeah. Is this something that in the design process, you were working real closely with the ties to, to bring something over here? Cause it doesn't sound like they deal with a lot of weeds from what you're no, talking about.
1: The, ties use, Thais use a long tail very differently than we do. We use a long tail for recreation and for, uh, uh, on our days off. The Thais use it for transportation. I've got friends in Thailand who live in stilt houses out in the country or on a klong. And that's the only way to their house. That is their, that is their Ford. Um, and, uh, if you say to them, Hey, let's go over out there and in them weeds, they would be like, why <laughs> <laughs> so, so they're used over there are much different than here
0: yeah when you did you ever try and explain that to them and and just see
1: a look of confusion yeah yeah i've i've, I've like you know when i show them videos too of what we do over here you know i, I think they're starting to kind of get it they're like yeah okay yeah. Uh, but because with them uh, they also have uh limited resources over there there's uh, you know there's a struggle for um to be able to compete for resources, you know, or you're going out, you know, trying to gather this or fish for that. And, uh, um, and being able to get somewhere, um, that other people can't go, you know, has its, its advantage. Is to be able to, uh, to do that. So. So what I hear you saying
0: is swamp runner tie is coming. You're going to have a, a whole, a whole division over there back uh, of your weedless props so that people can get to places they need to i see i see the long con you you take their technology you bring it here you adapt it you take it back you give back to the community i see i see where you're going with it man yeah uh,
1: (laughs) there there are some things being used in thailand that i have developed uh i uh i developed a bushing system and that that's probably the the best thing that i've ever contributed to a thai long tail and i had a lot of failures uh trying to come up with it but um the uh, the Thai long tail itself uses a a wooden bushing internally inside the shaft. Um, there's nothing wrong with that bushing. It's an excellent bushing. Been using it since 1957. They just they tend to wear a little faster than other materials. Uh, but we do have shafts out there with wood bushings in them that uh, you know people running ten years old. They're, they're oh. great that that shaft I have down at the shop that's from 1961 62 still has the original wood bushings in it um the wood they use over there is uh is 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 a, is a it's a redwood and um the uh it it doesn't swell in water mm. it's an excellent wood for maritime use um i had a I had a phone call one time from a guy who was asking me a lot of strange questions, a lot of odd questions. And I, I got, I kind of got the feeling he wasn't a customer that he was a competitor. And uh, I thought, you know, I'm going to test this. So the guy was asking me what the wood material is in our shafts. And uh, I said, Oh, it's made of Takian wood. And so he said, okay, how do you spell that? And I told him and uh, I'll be darned if it wasn't, you know, just a short while later, those words showed up on his website, and um, that's not what it's made from. The the, the, the wood <laughs> t- in Thailand. The wood Takian is actually the the Thais are very superstitious people, and they they believe that the Takian trees there's there's actually fairies that live in them, and you and you can go to the fairy to get lottery numbers or, or whatever. They'll even hang clothing in the trees for the fairies. They'll put powder on the trees. It's it's the darndest thing you ever saw, but the Ties would never, ever use a Takian tree for their shafts. Uh, The only thing those trees are used for are for um, dugout canoes for racing, ceremonial racing. Yeah. And they they use them for their um, uh, uh, funeral pyre, for a a funeral. And that's it. There's no other use for that tree. They dang
0: sure wouldn't make a bushing out of it.
1: No, no. So when I tell the ties that they just they laugh, they think that's the funniest part. <laughs> but, uh, but
0: yeah. Uh, <laughs> how, <clears> how, anyway, how, how do you spell that word? Ian.
1: a k i e n. I'm
0: I'm going to have to cut that out of this podcast because my listener base will absolutely go searching to figure out who that was, and I don't I don't want them, I don't want them to do
1: that. Off <laughs> there now. I don't, I don't think okay. pretty an more? Anyway. Anyway, uh, um, back to the bushing. I uh, this bushing I, I uh, come up with. I it's 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 made a, of polymer, um, and I won't say what's in it. Um, I went actually went to a patent attorney to. I was going to patent it, and the guy said, "Son, you don't want to patent this." And I said, "Why not?" He goes, "Because you would have to reveal your formula, and all it, all your competitors would have to do is change it just a, a tiny percent, mm-hmm. and they've beaten your patent." He said, "Just keep your mouth shut." So that's what I've done all these years. There's only myself and uh, my wife knows and uh, no, no one that works for me knows what's in it. Um, the people who make it for me, they don't know what it's for and they ship it to uh, some folks for me and it gets moved to another. So it, it, there's a lot going on uh, there uh, to keep it from, the, the the people at our factory don't even know where it comes from. But uh, it is, uh, it's an amazing bushing. Uh, we put it in a test tank out behind the shop, and we ran it for over a month.
2: Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach. With your people. And you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.
1: Uh, non-stop at 3,600 RPMs in a tank full of mud and sand and grit and debris. And um, I'd go out once a week and I would stop, turn, turn off the motor. It's an electric motor running at 3,600 RPM to, to simulate a, a small mm-hmm. engine. bottle. And uh, I turned it off once a week. Go check the end of the tail bushing to see if there was any play in it. No play. And um, so after 1,018 hours, I finally said, "Steve, we're just burning electricity." Um, and we shut it off. Um, and still, there was no, there was there was play in it. You know, but you had to use a micrometer to measure. It. There was no discernible play by the naked eye or the hand in that in that tail shaft.
3: So
1: that's Unreal. just – I use when we when we did the the Yukon descent, um, and uh, again, you know, no play in it. Matter of fact, that shaft's still in Alaska, being used by a friend up there that hunts with it all the time. And uh, but that that uh, is the most durable drivetrain component that I know of in any in any mud motor anywhere. There is no mud motor anywhere that can beat that. Um, you know, most of the other companies run bearings. Um, when you, when your seals give way and, you know, water intrudes, you know, your bearings are going to be trash, um, and they can be expensive, um, and, you know, frustrating, but, uh, ours doesn't have any bearings except for up in the coupler itself. We've got a bearing up there way up near the motor, but down near the prop where the water is and all, there's no bearing down. There. It's just, just these bushings and, uh, they don't care. They just keep going. Okay, so what's the what's the maintenance like on this elegantly
0: simple design? Like what what if if you use it on the weekends and whatnot, uh, you know, not like you where you're out there running it, you know, mm-hmm. for the testing, but for the weekend warrior, which is the the mm-hmm. person listening to this podcast, what kind of yeah. annual maintenance are we looking at?
1: Actually, somebody who runs it, you know, weekend or every now and then, it would be more important to do maintenance than somebody that uses them every day. You know, that okay. runs the ties don't really do anything to them because they, except for the racers, the racers will take their shafts out when they get home and they'll, 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 they'll hang them up or sit them in a bucket and they'll pour used motor oil down the shaft and let that run all the way through and coat the bushings inside. So it basically coats the shaft with oil to displace the water so that the shaft doesn't rust. And, uh, we tell people the same thing here. Just, you know, take your shaft out of the coupler. You, you just loosen the two wing bolts, pull the shaft out, stand it in the bucket. If you run it in salt water, run water down the end of the shaft and just flush it out, you know, and let it flush real good. And then stand it in the bucket, pour some oil in it. Doesn't matter what kind of oil, we don't care. It can be cooking oil, um, use motor oil, um, anything, and uh, just something to coat the shaft inside and just leave it standing in that bucket till the next time you're going to use it. Um, other than that, uh, there, there really is no, no other maintenance. That's okay. It's a lot easier than my
0: outboard. In fact, I just, uh, I had to network. Um, my wife bought me this GNU, uh, for father's day, uh, uh, 2020. mm-hmm. 1 2021. And, uh, it's a 1987 GNU. And she got me a nineteen eighty four Evan Rude nine point nine with a fifteen horsepower up uh fifteen horsepower carb and needle kit and everything. It's upgraded. Yeah. Um it has ran efficiently for about three months. Uh-huh. And uh I finally just ran out of time. And a Patreon uh member whose father works on outboard said, Listen, dad said, you know, he feels sorry for you. You should be able to figure this out. But since you can't Uh, just send it to me, you know, let's meet up. My dad will work on it and get it going. It took all of that to get that outboard
2: going. We're talking
0: about a lawnmower and pouring oil down the shaft. And I like the simplicity of that because I've got my own business. I got a podcast. I got a a wife, a kid, a full-time job, but I can find time to do that, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, the one thing that uh, being a uh, fish and wildlife lieutenant taught me over the years of I had to handle all the bills for repairs for everyone on my squad and, uh, you know, twin engine patrol boats, uh, there aren't cheap to operate or keep running. Um, you know, these days they have to use a laptop to diagnose what's wrong on them. And, uh, you know, parts are, are, are crazy expensive and saltwater, uh, or just any Marine mechanic is, is crazy expensive. You know, they charge Mm -hmm. pretty healthy rates. So, Um, The idea of having a general purpose engine that has no electronics on it, you know, there's no onboard computer, you can work on it yourself, Uh, parts are readily available, it's air cooled, so you don't have to worry about an impeller being chewed up by sand. Um, You know, all of those things are a win-win for, you know, the the working guy who uh, doesn't have time for all that Mm -hmm. Or, or the extra cash either.
0: Well and you know add another layer to this um if in this area if you don't run Yamaha Mercury or a 2000 and new and 2000 and a 2000 and newer Honda there's no one to work on outboards There's no one here. There's no one who will work on it. So God forbid you're a working class fella who has been given a motor, who has maintained a motor over the years, and they're freaking expensive now. They are stupid expensive. My dad and I ordered in 2015 a Nissan 15 horse Marine grade four stroke, $1,300. And that was paying for all the the, the, the saltwater grade components and doing and doing the whole the whole dude. You can barely find a used outboard for thirteen hundred dollars. That's that's in
1: any kind of good condition. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's crazy, absolutely crazy. Yeah. You know, when I first started as a young officer in the in the early nineties, you'd go out on Tampa Bay to Egmont Key or out along the causeway in Palmasola, and the boats would be stacked up. One next to another. I mean, right mm-hmm. up on the beach, just pulled up one next to another. And they had massive parties. It just mm-hmm. there was lots of people on the water. And that all changed though as uh as boating became more and more expensive, that started dwindling to where, you know, you go out there and you just see a handful. Just, you know, a few boats on the weekend. It was it was just crazy that the transition from when I started as a young officer to near where I retired, how how boating had become so cost prohibitive that there was a lot a lot less people a lot less a lot more a lot fewer people that could afford it i get it out but uh um yeah really changed a lot so let's 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 talk about some of the things that that
0: pertain like questions the 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 uh, common thoughts that I've had, things that people have passed along to me. I know these are all questions that you probably hear on a routine basis, but um, I have often found if one person has a question, there are normally thousands who have the same question. Um, and then I want to wrap up. I think with your Alaskan voyage because I'm looking at these photos and it just it hurts my heart. Um, it's it's beautiful. It's I just I want to be there on mm. a boat and not you. You know what I'm saying? Like it's it's it calls to you. Um. Yep. So one of the so so one of the uh, obvious limitations to this to this motor is you don't have reverse. How do you cope with that?
1: Well, you uh, as you're it, it, being it's a simple design. You know, not having a, res- a reverse uh, just makes you one one less thing to break. You right. know, with clutches and all that. So when you're approaching a, a dock or a boat ramp, you uh, you tilt your prop out of the water. but well, you're no longer have that thrust to propel you forward so that causes the boat to slow down so you just uh you'll uh you'll just ease up you slow up when you're approaching another boat you know you want to come alongside or or a dock or the beach or whatever you just slow down as you're as you're get coming up to it and uh the nice thing about a tie long tail or long tail in general is you can lift the prop out of the water and you can move it over you know 20 degrees and put it back in the water uh, to change the direction mm. and another thing you can do in that in that regard is if you if you're let's suppose you're stuck um out there in, in some mud you can reach over to this water with it or over to that water over on the other side of the boat with it where you can't do that with a with a, an outboarder service drive so uh, with, a, with a, a long tail the propeller has a lot more options when it comes to water around the boat to reach to um it also is uh is very uh handy when you're climbing over logs you know if you you're climbing over a log that's right on the surface of the water you'll you'll you know the the long tail is back there behind the you know way behind the log and mm-hmm. it's able to push the boat over that log and then when you reach the log you just tilt up and you know keep your prop above the log till you float 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 free of the log and then put your uh, prop back down in the water. Um a surface drive you can't do that. Um you'll get actually get hung up on the log most likely with a surface drive. But um um so it does have its advantages like that, you know. The sure. uh the being the uh the surface drives though are easier to drive. There's no doubt about that. They, they you got a two-dimensional uh driving you side to side just like an outboard whereas uh, a long tail it's three-dimensional where you're you're mm-hmm. uh the tiller handle but once you get on a plane with it with a long tail and it's dialed in it'll, it'll find its spot and it'll want to stay there and you just don't really want to fight it you just let it let it ride where it wants to ride okay you
0: know? so you, you you created a beautiful segue to my next question which is mm-hmm. uh i've got several friends with mud motors they all started with uh a variation of a long tail um, mm-hmm. about half of them are still with long tails and uh, mm-hmm. the other half uh, said they could never get it to not fight them and find that sweet spot. What are they, this is a very visual question, but what are they doing wrong?
1: Well, it there's, there's so many variables. There's a, a section in the back of our owner's manual. that's a series of questions. And I want to say it's like about 15 questions. It's, it's things, you know, if it's doing this, do this, do this first and then do this second and then do this third. And you go through that series of, uh, of, uh, of troubleshooting questions and you, you can uh, dial your motor in. Um, one of the questions would be, uh, not from that manual, but one of the questions I would ask is what brand is it? What motor is it? Mm -hmm. Because there are are others out there that, um, you can fight them and you're going to continue fighting them because, The balance is not right on them. They're just not built right. Uh, They're not set up right. But with ours, uh, there are things just in general with a long tail. If it does have the right geometry, um, you can uh, actually tweak it. You can uh, put a little bend in your skeg to to port. If you're standing behind the skeg, you would Mm -hmm. bend it to port with like a crescent wrench, just slightly. And that will take away um, prop torque. Cause your prop is walking to the left. Okay. And when you have it on the end of a very long shaft, that, that becomes more pronounced. So your prop as it turns is walking in the water to the left. Well, that skeg being bent creates just enough water flow over that bent skeg to push it back mm. to center. So that, that bend is so slight, but it will, it will cause your prop to run right in the center of that wake that we were talking about earlier. If you're not in the center of that wake, you're going to fight it. If it wants to come out of one side of that wake or the other side of the wake, that's because uh, it's not running right dead center, and it, it just needs a little tweak, probably on the skeg. If what it's about, one of, say that again. If it's if it's if it's our long tail, if it's a swamp runner, chances are all you're going to need is a little tweak on the skeg to to make it run straight right in the middle there.
0: What what about uh, the people who I, I've talked to people who've said that long tails, typically speaking, uh, you have to fight it to keep it in the water. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that that's because those long tails weren't in that crest where that weight comes back together. And that's that's one of those reasons. Am I am I on to something
1: there? There's there's many reasons why they could be fighting it. One of the one of the most common reasons is over propping like a guy wants to run a nine inch prop on a, on a, on a 13, 14 horse motor that should be running an eight and a half. Uh, they're wanting to over prop. So that will be, you'll fight that. There's no doubt you go down a prop size. That's in those questions in our back of our book. That's, that's what, uh, in the manual, it, it'll talk about that. I think that's the very first one, but, uh, um, they, uh, over can do that. Um, what else? Uh, Outrunning the the weight can do that, and that has to do with shaft length. We have uh, we offer more shaft lengths than uh, any other mud motor company. Um, If you're if you got a wider boat, if the bottom of your boat is is uh, I'd say forty inches or more, I we really don't recommend anything over about forty five inch wide boat. Forty-eight, somewhere in there. But the narrower, the better with a long tail, and, and I'm talking the bottom of your boat, not the gunnels. But down on the bottom, the narrower, the better. And a narrow hull, that wake is going to be not as far back. Mm-hmm. With a hull, that wake can be further back. And also, if you increase speed, that wake can be further back. So, it's important with a tie long tail to be in the crest of that wake when you're running.
0: I, I can. I could I could see that, and I think that's one of the reasons we talked about the canoe was actually a pretty suitable option.
1: Uh, the,
0: the, that the swamp water was, a, was a really good suitable option for the canoe.
1: Yeah, it is. It, it's a, it's a that's a really good combination. There, um, we've got guys running like little uh, six and a half horse, uh, you know, Harbor Freight or Honda motor on those, and they they they'll push them,
0: push them real well. Yeah. You know, it's, it's surprising uh, when you go to YouTube, there's not a, there's not a lot of people uh, that have that combination on YouTube.
2: Yeah. And
0: uh, it's surprising to me, especially in Florida, uh, because of the, I mean, the, the two things are hand in hand. If, if you think canoe, yeah. you think Florida, and if you think mud motor, you're probably thinking Florida, Georgia, South Carolina kind of thing. Um, right. But man, the people who have it, you got people like out in, on, on, on on big water lakes who have these, these mud motors and they have a blast because they're able to get these canoes up into creeks and channels that, that people can't get to just for bass fishing. And they just, right. they love it. Um, So I, I feel like the, the only, when I'm hearing you talk, the limitation is the size of the boat with these. So I think that what we probably have a, a, a possibility of is, uh, probably some of these people who have a negative connotation may have the wrong setup for the boat. Yep. Right. Um, It sounds like that's, that's part of it. Um, it sounds like they are maybe not giving uh, Mr. Dobbs a call to that X for everything
1: that happens. If, if people call us generally uh, Steve at the shop, answers the phone and Steve can talk anybody through, uh, you know, he'll ask a series of questions and he can usually get them straightened out um but yeah boat width is important uh the type of boat's important um you know a flat bottom is better than a a b haul um and a a narrow haul is 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 better but there's uh there are those reasons uh and if if someone's putting one on a boat that's got a really high transom too that can also have a negative impact so uh, generally you know a standard transom 15 16 inch transom is what we you know, we tell people. Um, but we've had people call us up wanting to put them on airboat hulls or something super wide. And we just tell them, sorry, buddy, you, you can't do that. Um, and uh, generally, when somebody has a wide hull and they call our shop, what we tell them is, go buy a service drive. Um, you know, I, we want, I'm not in the business of, you know, I, of uh, just trying to sell something. We, uh, we want people to be happy and, and we know they're not going to be happy if they put a uh, if they put a long tail on a, a hull that's you know forty eight inches wide, uh, it's, chances are they're not going to be happy with that. So
0: let's talk about the Yukon trip, man.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: The Yukon is a beast. We are talking about we are talking about. You said it best. It, the, the Alaska is the last frontier. It's it's the it's the place where men go in and find out just how manly they are. Everybody I know that's gone to Alaska comes back different. My little brother, uh, yes. my sister was stationed in Alaska, and my little brother took every opportunity to go up there and see her. And mm-hmm. he's like, dude, we've got to do a float trip. Like before your knees get bad, before your back gets bad, he's significantly younger than me. So it's a legit concern for him. Um, you know, he's he he uh he's twenty two yeah. and I'm thirty-three. So he's 21. He just turned 21. And so he's like, before your knees get bad, like we got to we got to do it. And we got, and then you got to prepare because you got to take your kid. And so like, you got to figure it out. Um, Here I am 80 degrees, a couple years back, 80 degrees scrolling through uh, Instagram. And I see this crystal clear water with icebergs and, and, and woolly mammoths walking down the bank. And here (laughs) comes a mud motor down the bank. What the heck were y'all doing? Oh, wow.
1: Um, Well, I I went to Alaska. My very first trip to Alaska was on a cruise ship, probably like most people would go up there. Um, Very typical. And uh, we did the inside uh, portion of a cruise too, from Fairbanks down through Denali and down to Anchorage and then got on the boat and came down the inside passage. And the whole time I was like, I just kept saying to myself, I got to be out there. I got to be out there. You know, I would look out a train window and just, you know, or a bus window and say, I, I, I want to go out there. I want to see that. And, uh, we went on, uh, a trip called the white pass railway. It went from Skagway up through the old Chilkoot trail, you know, where the, where the uh, miners crossed over into Canada into the Yukon. We took that train up and went uh, over into Canada. And I got to see the headwaters of the Yukon. You know, it was, uh, some lakes up there, a lake called Tagish, and when I saw that lake i i it, it, the the idea just hit hit my head. I said, "I have to float that i have to I have to run that river and uh it's, it just gnawed at me for the next several years and uh I started planning it, and uh there was a lot to think about because of logistics with fuel, with uh um, weight of you know your cargo what safety equipment do you bring? How many people do you bring? Um, there's, there's issues with, uh, there's certain things you have to have duplicates of up there. Um, you don't, you don't just go with one. Um, uh, so I had to figure out all of that, the weight, uh, fuel sources, where do you fuel? how much fuel are we going to carry, how much fuel, uh, consumption, uh, you know, all those things. So, it's it, it after four years of this it finally started coming together and uh, a lot of testing on a lake with cargo in the boat we go to our local lake here run it and uh, i talking with briggs and stratton about their consumption on their motors that you know which one has the you know the right fuel consumption and the right ability to for, for carrying the payload we needed and then there was the boat the boat was a really big deal um And that came together, uh, out of, actually out of Southeast Asia. I, uh, I had some guys in Southeast Asia build uh, me two boats and we shipped them here, uh, brought them to Florida. And the reason I wanted these boats is because they had a narrow bottom and very long. And if you, if you read any of the, uh, the old, um, books on, uh, the days of the Garwood racing halls back in the the 1930s, where they these rich men raced these mahogany race boats. What they figured out was hull speed increased when you increase the length of a boat. That's that's just a that's uh, one of the rules of marine architecture. That uh, and they figured this out, so they would lengthen the hull of the boat, and they would also have to add a little more horsepower to that, and their hull speed would go up. And that's how these guys kept beating each other and racing. Well, they also figured out that a long, narrow hole back in those days, if you looked at pictures, old pictures of these launches and these uh, these old uh, river boats and stuff that transported people and cargo, they were narrow and long because they didn't have a lot of horsepower to deal with, to push those. We're talking displacement holes now. In sure. this situation. They didn't have a lot of the horsepower to, uh to, to push their cargo with. So the the most ideal hull to push a heavy a heavy uh uh payload with a very small engine is something that's long and narrow. Makes so, sense. So these boats that we use, they were 21 foot six inches long and they're about uh they're about 40 inches wide gunnel to gunnel. The bottom on them I think is about 35 inches on the bottom. And uh they were made of fiberglass. Uh, I wanted fiberglass because uh, I can repair that out in the middle of nowhere, and which we did. We did end up having to repair. Um, so that all came together, and that uh, my uh, mechanic ended up being a guy from uh, um, Nebraska. I named Troy Anzalone. Excellent mechanic, excellent machinist, and an outdoorsman. And he used our product. That's how I got to know him is he was using swamp runners and just crazy about him. He runs the rivers out there. He did a trip from Elkhorn, Nebraska to St. Louis, Missouri, which was about 700 miles. And he took like a Rokon motorcycle in the, in the boat with him. I don't know if you know what those are. I do.
0: I had one yeah. actually.
1: Yeah. I, I've got one. Uh, I anyway. love them. Yeah. But anyway, he, he would use that Rocon to go get fuel at these little towns as he's coming through, you know, Nebraska and Missouri. And, uh, so he made that run and, uh, that's what convinced me to invite him along on the trip. I'm like, "Troy, you want to do something more fun than that?" And uh, he's like <laughs> He knew I was going to be making this trip. There was a few people who knew about it, and he said, "John, he goes, I've been so hoping you were going to ask me to go." <laughs> That's awesome. So he ended up uh, I flew him up and and my videographer, a, a young guy out of out of uh, Orlando. I flew them into Whitehorse. And uh, I rigged these boats up in all our gear and uh, my little GMC pickup and uh, I stacked the boats on a trailer and we hauled them up uh, I drove all the way up there it took about uh fourteen days yeah from Florida to uh to Whitehorse and I, I picked them up at the airport and then we had a, another buddy of mine he's he's uh he's actually Yupik uh, Eskimo mm-hmm He's, he lives in Fairbanks. He flew in to, uh, um, to Whitehorse, So the four of us, we go down to, um, we go, we go South, which is, uh, basically going uphill. And we go into British Columbia to a, a, a little place. Uh, um, man, I'm trying to think of the name of the lake, uh, most beautiful place I've ever seen in North America. Absolutely gorgeous. Um, what is the name of that little town? It's, uh, it's, uh, it's near the Llewellyn Glacier. Anyway, uh, I don't know why I can't think of that tonight, but, um, anyway, we, we launched there and there was a local guy there, um, who, uh, was, who knew the waters real well. So we asked him about, uh, you know, the local waters. There's a little river goes from this lake down to a lower lake. And, uh, asked him about that. And he says, Oh, he goes, um, you'll be able to do it. No problem. He goes, uh, the water's good. He goes, you can do it. He goes, I I'll show you. He goes, there's some bends in it though. You got to watch because, uh, you know, most rivers, the inside of the bend is, or the outside is the deep water and the inside is not, he goes well, with this river. He goes, for some reason, he goes, there's a couple spots. It's the opposite. But, um, anyway, he, uh, he was quite the sourdough, quite a neat old guy. And I just found out that he's passed away since, mm-hmm. but uh, but um, so we ended up launching on this lake, and the, the the buddy from Fairbanks takes my truck and trailer and starts driving back to Alaska. And no sooner did he leave, uh, this old sourdough says to me and my two guys, he goes, "You know, uh, you know that that river is uh, class class four rapids, right?" and i'm like I, I i said why are you why did you just now tell me this i said in, in front of my crew i said you never said this before you said we could make it just fine he goes well i thought if i told you that you you would you would you would you would uh you wouldn't go if you still had your truck and trailer
0: oh my god
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, but, uh, so anyway we ended up um we ended up uh hiking up to the glacier we had to go up we had to go up the lake about uh 40 miles and then we had to hike up to this glacier about 12 miles and so we started the glacier hike back down get our boats and start coming down river and uh or down the lake and then uh we get back where this uh river is we shoot this the river and uh i ended up both boats we punched holes in the bottom of them Uh, coming through those rapids and um, when we got down to the bottom there was a there was an old uh, railroad depot down there left over from the late 1800s they had a box car sitting there and tools and stuff and the the place was empty and uh, so we slept inside this old this oh uh, that's cool it was really cool and we uh we fished for grayling right there while we had the boats flipped over fixing the bottoms on them and everything and uh, had a great time there fishing and uh, and uh, working on the boats. And then uh, we left there and uh, the following day and uh, went on down the lake. And we went to uh, some old mining camps down there that were just absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal places, uh, just absolutely beautiful. There's a place called Ben My Cree. If you looked it up, it was a, a Welshman and his wife came there in the 1880s and they, they built this place. And it, it looks like Switzerland. It's still there. It's very remote. When you pull up on the beach, there's nothing but wolf tracks and bear tracks. And the, but you go up to the house, you can open the door, walk in. There are newspapers from the 1800s. There's beds. There's 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 furniture. Everything's there. How did they get it there? Well, by by steamship back then. Yeah, but that was back when the, the Yukon actually had a lot more people on it in the 1800s than it does today. Okay. Farm, Yeah. Uh, all that's gone now. So, uh, but this place bin my Cree is just a, uh, it's just a something from the past. It's absolutely, it's spelled B E N my and Cree. I think C H R E E Ben my Cree. Um, absolutely beautiful place, but, um, I'd say it's the prettiest place I've ever been in North America. Um, anyway, uh, so we continued our journey down river and, uh, We'd sleep under the stars each night, and uh, uh, I did most of the cooking, and um, we ate pretty good. I did, the meal preparation took a lot longer than I expected it to be, so the other guys got to fish a lot more than I did. <laughs> <laughs> but we had a great time. One of the things we tried to do, do is to uh, we sent a drone up uh, in just about every town or village that was on that river. Um, so I, we have drone footage of it. I haven't, we haven't edited it yet, but I don't know that anyone's ever done that before, but, uh, it, you see, you could actually see the towns the little villages from the air. Um, uh, so that's, that's kind of a, a neat thing that we've done. And, uh, it, it, it was a, uh, an amazing trip. We got, uh, there were, the weather was about as good as it could be for Alaska. You know, it was August, July, August. We got some rain. We got to an area called the Yukon Flats, the river braids that's in Alaska, right, and it braids unbelievably to where the rivers can be twenty miles wide in you know braided sections yeah. all that yeah, and you, you you just keep going down and you don't know where the channel is uh, because it braids so much, but just prior to hitting the Yukon Flats, we'd stopped in a little village of circle, and I knew uh, a trapper there and his wife is the second chief of the village so they came down to the river to 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 greet us and and visit with us for a while and we're standing there in the rain and typical alaskans they're wearing like uh hoodies just cotton hoodies pulled and and it's raining on them and i said you guys don't have to stand out here and he's like oh no we don't have nothing better to do but uh uh his wife as we're saying goodbye she goes oh by the way there's a weather report that there's going to be 80 mile an hour winds and she just says it as like an aside, like uh, as an afterthought. I'm like, oh, well, thanks for telling me. <laughs> and, uh, oh. so we, we ran into that in the middle of the Yukon Flats. So it was like the worst place to hit that. But uh, yeah, we just we ended up just uh, sheltering on an island until it passed. But that that storm put so much floats and debris into the water that for almost the next thousand miles... We were we were uh playing uh we're trying to outrun that that log jam. You know, it sure we would we would outrun it, we'd we'd put up camp and the next morning there it would be again. So uh we had a lot of debris in the water, a lot of logs and stuff. So we'd hit submerged stuff quite a bit. And uh but uh it was really neat that river because there's so many uh little villages that you'll come to and you'll, you'll meet someone and then you'll go down river further. And somebody that's 600 miles down river will ask about somebody you met and ask how they are. Uh, it's crazy a world up there. Uh, you know, As far as the people, they know each other. Um, Alaskans are, are really a unique breed. They're really neat folks. Yeah. Very, very, very unpretentious. You know, what you see is what you get. I,
0: I so I found your photos actually from your trip when I googled Ben Cree. Your photos mm-hmm. were the stuff that actually popped up, and you're right; it looks like little Switzerland. It's it's just it's gorgeous. I see this cabin, man. It's crazy to think that that thing's been sitting there, um, for as long as it has. Like you think it'd be gone?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's so remote. You know that uh, you know people don't bother anything there. Anybody yeah. that have the means to get there is not going to bother anything. So. So it stays uh, fairly untouched, you know, and the, the people have a, the people that own it now, they're actually the family of uh, a man who he was a cabin boy on a steamship. And he came there as a kid. Uh-huh. And saw, the very first time he saw Ben McCree, he says, I want to own that one day. And the opportunity came later in life uh, and he was able to actually buy it. And it's still in the same family. That's so this- cool. Yeah, but they just got a sign on the door that says, you know, leave things as you found them. And uh that's it. But uh yeah, there's a there's some great folks up there. They there's uh little cabins along the river, places where they don't lock them. Uh they they usually they'll leave a supply of firewood, you know, in case, you know, if it's wintertime, somebody comes in and they're freezing, you know, life-threatening conditions, you got to have to build a fire. And there's usually always in any cabin you go into, there's firing matches right there. Um, And, you know, you just stock it back up yourself and leave it how you found it. But uh, Alaska is a neat place. It really is. Oh
0: man. That is, that just sounds like a good time, dude. Like there's, there's no part of that that is a ter- Maybe the eighty mile an hour winds, maybe, but it's Florida. We deal with that during hurricane season. Yeah, yeah. I, I can figure out a way. How did the how did the boats and the motors handle uh, that log jam?
1: Uh, you know, I hit, I hit uh, many, many times. It was so frustrating, and. My prop was wearing down my aluminum prop. I was running out because I don't run stainless props on my long tails. When I'm in a remote country, I run aluminum props and, uh, and I just want to be able to, you can always put another aluminum prop on. You can't, you know, replacing a shaft is a lot harder. Right. So I run aluminum props when I hunt up there or wherever I go, but I ran the same prop from the glacier down to, um, Trying to think of the name of the little town there. There's an Air Force base there. Basically 1,600 miles I put on one prop before I needed to change it. And it had some dings and, and it was it was starting to get bent and it was uh it was starting to get some vibration in it. And I was wanting to do the whole river on one prop, but it just didn't happen. So <laughs> I ended up having to change out and uh I, I did the rest of the river with a different prop. But I've got that prop laying on my desk in there, the one that, you know, I ran sixteen hundred miles with. So uh they did surprisingly well. They did well. Um the uh you ask about how the boats did, the, you know, they're a very narrow hole and long. Um we came to an area down where we start it, as you came down river, the the river would become wider and wider and every village we would come to, the local people would say two things to us. They would say you know, the river's going to get wider, don't you? And, and the next thing that they would say is look out for those Indians down river. They're mean at the next village, <laughs> at the next village. They always did that every one of them, but uh, pretty comical folks. But anyway, we, uh, they weren't lying. When we get down further down river, yeah. as you start to get near, near the, uh, mouth of the river, the river is five miles wide, five miles Wow. Life. That's and huge. The, yes, the the Mississippi's nothing in comparison. Uh there were islands that were fifty miles long in oh, the river. Shit. Um yeah, it, it it was just phenomenal. Um I'd be uh we were we were running along anyway and this one. I had to have a resupply done uh about halfway down river. There's a road going out of Fairbanks. It's they call it the Hall Road it's the road up to Prudhoe Bay. It's the one you, you've heard of ISO truckers Those guys yep. use, it goes over the Brooks range. It's super remote country. And I needed a, a resupply there. And uh, so I flew a buddy up in, from Florida. There, actually, it was two game wards They, they, uh, guys I worked with the guys I trusted um, Rob Gherkin and, uh, and Grant Burton, they came up and they flew into Fairbanks and they got my truck from my friend there he had to work so he wasn't available to come up and do the resupply so they 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 drove up and resupplied us up there and uh um at the uh that's the only bridge in all of alaska that that's the only bridge that crosses the yukon is there Huh. so, so after our resupply we came on down river and you know we're still playing uh tag with this uh log jam that keeps uh, we keep seeing Saw so a lot of wildlife along the way as well. You know, moose, bears, um, yeah. everything. We, uh, uh, we get down to a place called, uh, uh, near a place called St. Mary's. And there's oxbows that come off the river. The river's so wide, it's just huge. And I look back and I see an aluminum fishing skiff coming up on us. And, uh, I didn't know what these guys were doing, what they were about. And, uh, one thing up there is it's a pretty lawless place. Oh. There's, 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 no law out in the bush. So I pulled my 12 gauge shotgun out of the case and had it ready as they're approaching us. And as they come up next to me, they come off plane and I'm thinking, Oh, I hope this is good. Uh, and it was, it was two local guys and the, one of the guys said in the, broken english he says you follow me he says i know a shortcut so uh i just nodded and thanked him and uh, he took off and i fell in behind him and he took us into this oxbow which was much narrower and uh it cut about uh probably 20 miles off of our trip holy cow but not only that the wind was out of the Northwest. So when you came around that bend, it started hooking to the Northwest. If we had been in that main channel, it was really nasty. So when we did come out into the main river again, he was long gone. He was already gone. He was in a much larger boat, but we got to the main river. Uh, I remember Troy being in the boat next to me and he says, he's, we're looking ahead and he says, what is that? And we're looking out onto this sea. It's not a river. It's a sea. And uh, all I could see was this line of red. And then on top of it, a thin line of white. And then you could see the the sky, you know, blue sky. And I said, Troy, that's waves. That's red clay waves. And uh, these were, it was easily six foot seas. Holy shit wow and i've worked i've worked out on saltwater you know a good bit of my life i've done a lot of time offshore and that's the most scared i've ever been in a boat we were uh i told troy i said point the bow into these waves as we go into this this is we're going to commit to it and once you go do not get sideways if you don't keep the bow into the waves you will roll and if you roll cannot recover you and, uh, so we kept the boats into the waves and fought it, you know, and you just kept getting water up, you know, over the sides and on you. And, uh, we eventually made it to St. Mary's and, uh, and then when we were on that that North shore, it was on the lee side of the wind. So we were able to skirt the North shore and, there, and it was much better water up there, but that was probably the, uh, some of the worst water we've been through except for the rapids up in the, you know, up in the Canadian Rockies. So went through that and, uh, uh, came on down river and uh, we came to a little village called Mountain Village. And I happened to know a guy there who was a missionary preacher there. And he actually owned one of my mud motors from back in his days in Iowa. He he was a, he's a big duck hunter. So you had to stop in and visit with him and uh, spend some time there. It was good to catch up with him and um, uh great time. But we were coming uh, down an area, remote area, uh, one evening and uh, I couldn't find a place to camp and cause there's not a lot of campsites, you know, the, 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 the uh, mountains are straight up and down and there's, you know, a lot of thick vegetation and underbrush. So not a lot of options when it comes to camping up there, but coming down the river and it was getting close to dark and, you know, it was uh, cold and spitting a little rain. And I said a little prayer. I said, Lord, find me a campsite, and there was a a there was a, an island that we'd been running by, and then there was a break in an island before the next island, and these islands are long. So I looked between these two islands, and I saw some cottonwood trees, and I thought, that looks like a flat spot over there. So I turned the boat and started heading over to behind these islands, and as soon as I did, I looked to my left, and there were three crosses on a hill. <laughs> <laughs> right, there, right there. So uh, I looked over to my left, and this is the middle of nowhere. And I said to myself, "Thank you, Lord." So I turned the boat and I went over to this place, and it turned out to be the Cochrane Hills Bible Camp. And uh, when I pulled up to the shore, there was another boat there, an aluminum boat who, who had just come up from the the uh, they'd come up from uh, the, the Bering Sea, and it was a friend of mine. And I thought I was going to see him down when I got down to uh imonic, and uh, he says, "Oh no, we come back early so I got to see my friend too. We spent the night there, and uh, he brought some salmon up and we had a great time campfire and, and I got to meet uh i got to meet the uh the people who run this camp the uh, Cochrane hills they're 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 uh um what is there I'm trying to think of okay here we go. Um, you can, you can edit that out right. anyway, we're <laughs> coming down, we're coming down river and, uh, we, we, uh, and I ended up, uh, finding this, uh, Bible camp and, uh, and also reuniting with a friend. And, uh, when we met the people that run it, it's the Cochran Hills Bible camps run by, a uh, uh, an Alaskan native, uh, their last name is Huntington and, um, wonderful folks. Well, I spent the night there with them, and uh, the next morning we are having breakfast, and I asked them, I said, uh, you wouldn't by chance be related to Sydney Huntington, would you? And uh, the lady smiled, and she says, that's my husband's father. So if you want to read an absolutely fascinating book, and I'm talking a really good book on Alaska, there's a book called Shadows of the Koyakuk and the koyukuk river is a river that feeds out of the the brooks range it comes down and, and meets with the uh, yukon and uh it's about uh, this Sidney huntington he was a man who uh he was a native and he he lived up there uh, as a child and uh his story is absolutely amazing i won't i won't tell you any more about it but uh, just look that book up you yeah. will thoroughly enjoy reading that and that will give you a great taste of Alaskans and uh and just how tough they are. Uh Sydney was an amazing man and uh the Huntington's great folks too there, uh Cochrane Hills Bible camp. But uh anyway, as we started getting near the mouth of the river, you know, I was telling you it was getting wider and wider, and it's just a uh a real challenge. And so we would run, uh, we would run oxbows as much as we could, you know, side channels and things, <clears throat> but we finally, uh, the last couple of days, it was just raining on us, just pouring and pouring. And, uh, I remember the day that I knew we were going to make the Bering sea, I was really kind of bummed. I was thinking, you know, it'd be nice to be able to shoot some video and stuff and actually get some pictures, but this rain, we're going to be able to do anything. So I was having to, um, navigate around oyster beds and stuff through this rain downpour and it was coming down hard and i remember praying i said lord if it would please thee i would love to see the sun when we reach the bering sea and uh so we made the bering sea like probably four or five hours later and we go out the uh out the, the mouth of it. And we hook up to the right. We pull up on the beach there where there's a bunch of, uh, whale bones and stuff. And, uh, it's, you know, it's just big tufts of grass and beautiful country. Uh, very, very remote windswept. And so we're enjoying, you know, our, uh, time there on the beach, having a beer. And, and I think Troy skipped down, He stripped down naked, went swimming, which is <laughs> crazy. But, uh, um, uh, and so Tim was running the drone and doing this and that. and uh. All of a sudden, and it's really, you know, it's very dark and uh, very uh, cloudy all around us and windy. And all of a sudden the clouds parted and the sun shined on an area, a radius around us that was uh, maybe, you know, three, two or 300 yards, a circle that shined down on us. I looked all around us. There was no other sun anywhere else. And that shun's, that sun shined on us for about, three or four minutes and then the clouds closed up and it was gone. And yeah. Yeah. A trip like that. Uh, there were so many times I saw the Lord's hands in it. And uh, when you get out under the stars like that and you live like that, uh, where you're not in control, yeah. Um, you really develop a very healthy, um, respect for nature and, uh, also, uh, um, you know, a, a dependence on the Lord too. Cause, uh, you ain't going to make it by yourself. You do a trip like that. You won't make it by yourself if you don't, uh, um, you know, put some trust in him. But, uh, it was strange coming back. Cause you know, I camped on the way back home as well. Um, coming back down, I got back down to Anchorage and stayed with a buddy and, uh, we did some, uh, some, some salmon fishing and stuff. And then uh, I was waiting for my gear because my gear had to be flown back from mnemonic on a C C-130, mm-hmm. and My motors and everything. So we flew that back to, uh, it was a backhaul. So it wasn't expensive. Usually it's expensive to, to, to transport any kind of gear into the bush, mm-hmm. but coming out of the bush are usually coming empty. So if they're they're coming sense. out, it's super cheap, uh, to, to, to haul stuff out. But, um, but anyway, uh, sleeping out under the stars for two months. Uh, when I got home, it was really strange sleeping inside.
0: It sounds like a really rough way to spend two months. If you ask me, I don't know that I, uh, I don't know that I could
1: do that. It was, it, <laughs> it was, it was amazing. Uh, yeah. you know, I stopped in Nebraska and saw Troy cause had already flown back. So I, I stopped and saw him and had dinner with his family and we're sitting at the dinner table and he says, so John, Would you do it again? And I I looked at him and I said, why the hell would I want to do it again? I've already done it. And he started laughing. He said, that's exactly how I answered the guys at work when they asked me the same question. He said, why would I want to do it again? But uh, I'm glad I've done it. You know, we're really glad we did it. Uh, It was was an amazing experience. Even now, there's sometimes I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'm some spot on that river. Yeah. Wow.
0: Yeah, man. Well, let's do this. Um I told it I told everybody at the beginning of this podcast that so this would be one of those that we weren't able to cover everything. And uh <laughs> as we sit, I believe we have a 2-hour long podcast. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I can't believe we've been talking that long.
0: <laughs> yep. No, I just I just looked over it's 9:49. We hit go at uh, right about 8.
3: Oh wow!
0: So uh, <laughs> I I have got my hands full with an edit here, but I want to give you an opportunity. Circling uh-huh. back to, to 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 Swamp Runner, uh huh. Give me the elevator pitch. Why should everyone in Florida with a narrow long boat be running
1: your system? Well, it's 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 the best motor. It's the best mud motor ever built. When I when I'm and I'm not taking credit for me on that I'm that, that all the credit goes to Song sweeper Sreepasert Ying the guy that started this in 1957. It's a tried and true system that uh, has cut its teeth on in the jungles of Southeast Asia. It's a third world motor for third world conditions. Uh, the Yukon River is filled with glacial silt. Uh, glacial silt is new sand. It's it's like razor blades. It's very sharp. So the guys up there that that fish that river with outboards, they carry packs and packs of seals with them because that 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 river eats up their seals on their outboards just right and left. They constantly have to change them out. Uh, but the swamp runner, it doesn't matter. There are no seals. It doesn't care. So it's the ideal motor for that that situation. It's so easy to work on. I could tear, I could tear a swamp runner down on a gravel bar with minimal tools in probably about 30 minutes down to its very smallest parts and then put it all back together and then go again. Uh, you can work on it anywhere. You don't have to have, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, special tools. Matter of fact, my little box that I carry in my boat all the time is a little Tupperware dish. It's about, uh, I'd say it's about 10 inches long by about six inches wide by about two inches high. And I can fit everything in that box that I need to work on a motor out in the, in the middle of nowhere.
0: That's awesome, man. I'm yeah. I'm excited. I'm really excited this spring. Uh, I'm going to be doing a bunch of fiberglass work, redoing the benches, putting new foam in the boat to make it safe. Uh, might even modify the center bench to, to get rid of uh, some of that space where I can walk, walk through it and reinforce the sides um, yeah. once, once I'm done with that, it's time to build a motor time to get it going. Um, and, uh, pretty much what I'm saying is if you're listening to this podcast right now and you're getting the places where you don't see people get ready, there's going to be a, a ginger hobbit flying around with it, with a canoe and a swamp runner coming to it, to a, uh, an isolated location near you. Cause right now I'm paddling into those spots and it works. Uh, yeah. but, uh, we're going to be more efficient here soon. Sounds good. All right, buddy. So guys, here's the deal. That's a long podcast. I know that's a long podcast, but I think the whole story as a whole helps build a picture for why I had him on the show. This isn't just a, uh, some guy out there making a profit. This isn't some company making making a product. There is a guy with a story. There's a there is a a lifelong Floridian here, um, and I knew some of this as we've gone. I knew about the the glacial silt. I knew about the, the 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 bushings that he has, and I knew that all those stories would help paint a picture of a reliable option. And I want to give back to Florida brands, and so we had the option to have a, a bunch of people on, um, but it only seemed right that we had had John on. So, dude, I want to extend a huge thank. Thank you from all all of our listeners for taking. Uh, well, I mean, we've got to be like at three hours now between all the times that we've talked, <laughs> trying to record a podcast, having actually report recorded the podcast, and hopefully we answered some questions. And I'd be willing to bet there's going to have to be a part two at some point in time because this is going to generate a dialogue. There's going to be more questions that come up, and I think we just we're going to have to put them all together and do a Q and A or something.
1: Walt, it's been a ball. I I really enjoyed. it. I can't believe we've been talking this long. You told me I thought it was I thought we were about forty five minutes to an hour. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, I love talking about longtails, I can talk about them all day long. And uh, if you call our shop, Steve's even worse. He's <laughs> off the phone. He, but he is.
0: Uh, I may call. I may call Steve just just to talk to him whenever I'm doing my bill. Just to, to I bet you he's got something up his sleeve that he could. Uh,
1: You better have plenty of time if you call uh, (laughs) because he he will talk to you as long as you want to talk.
3: (laughs) All right, man. I appreciate it. Well, hey, I enjoyed it.